Welcome to the Higher Ed Huddle, hot off the press podcast, where we bring you the latest higher ed news and stories twice monthly. I'm Joe Trano, and I'm joined by my co-host, Chase Good. We are with Barry Dunn's Higher Education Management and IT Consulting Team. Chase, how are you today? I'm doing great, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. On today's podcast, we're, we're going to shake things up a bit and each share a story for discussion. Um, the stories are around outsourcing online program systems and performance-based funding at community colleges. So that's just a little bit of a teaser there, but I'm looking forward to this, uh, this, this uh, new format that we're going to try. Um, so why don't you go first? Um, I'll react to your story, and then I'll share my story, and then you can react, and we can have some discussion around these two uh, hot topics so uh, with that said, go for it, Chase. All right, Joe. Well, yeah, getting right into it. So the, the topic that I wanted to talk about today is really when an institution should outsource online program management and when they shouldn't. So there was an article posted um, by Inside Higher Ed that focused on a report that was recently done by the University of Louisville. So the, uh, the article focused on the perception of Jeffrey Sun, who is the Department of Educational Learning and Leadership Director at the University of Louisville. And it addressed the questions of, should the university hire an online program management or an OPM company or build out their online programs in-house. And for reference, you know, an OPM is a company such as Pearson, 2U, Learning House, Online Education Services, Academic Partnerships, among many others that provide uh, hosted services for online programs. And the report was titled In-House or Outsource and was published in October by the University of Louisville, which surveyed 92 uh, CIOs about why their institutions did or did not use outsource providers to deliver online learning and what their experience was like if they did. So the report is designed to be a playbook on what to expect from these OPM companies and other forms of tech-enabled learning. So at a high level, the playbook kind of evaluates, um, you know, the different steps, which the first one would be to assess the internal online learning operations at the institution today. And then from there, if there is a need to have an OPM provider, then they would issue an RFP for those different companies, evaluate options and negotiate terms. So your standard kind of purchase of a software system or service um, when it comes to a university or a higher education institution. But getting into the report a little bit, more than half of the respondents believe that students would increasingly seek out online learning in the future. And 83% of their institute of the institutions said that they would expect the sustained demand for online learning that they found in co uh, based on the response to COVID-19. And this speaks to the demand in general um, of increased online learning presence uh, among higher education institutions. And there were three main questions that were uh, that respondents weighed during the decision-making process of whether or not to contract with an OPM. And that's how would the engagement with an outsourced company affect the institution? Will the company meet the needs of the institution? And how will the contractual terms benefit or hurt the institution? And so respondents said that their institutions were likely to consider working with an OPM provider based on three main factors, speed, money, and marketing. Peer pressure also did play a key role, especially from large universities, which have a higher pre prevalence in online learning and, those, and they have a little bit more resources to kind of devote to, to those programs. Working with outside companies isn't the only way to do it. However, many company, many institutions choose to pursue this approach because 
those OPM providers provide upfront money to develop and launch those programs at the start. So that's one-time funding that's allocated, and then it's paid back over the course of the contract with those providers. So the OPM partner takes on a lot of the financial risk and helps you know, drive some of the enrollment and demand towards those products. And that's all at the very beginning. So there's very, very little resources or fewer resources required upfront from those different institutions. And the biggest thing that the, the colleges and universities were focused on was how those OPM providers would help market those different online programs to prospective students. And so that was one of the biggest needs that they, they found was, yeah. okay, you can, you can develop these programs, but how do you actually market it and attract students to help drive enrollment? And so that was actually a really big point of contention in the report was that when it came to evaluating their need and how well those providers met the need, marketing had the biggest gap um, in terms of all of the different needs that they were evaluating. And so that also, you know, could speak to the fact that, you know, the expectations were not met when it came to marketing those online programs to different students. But this isn't really surprising to a lot of, you know, institutions because, you know, adult learning and, and continuing education is extremely difficult to attract at the moment, um, mostly mm -hmm. driven by the labor force, you know, the, mm -hmm. the high demand in the labor force, as well as the prevalence of for-profit online institutions, despite the recent controversies. And so the, the primary concern about how outsourced uh, OPM companies operate is the contractual agreements, you know, whether or not they're going to be able to recoup the funds, the OPM company that is, that they provide up front, and then what that means for the institution if they're not able to bring in students and their, and their marketing goals are not met. And so a lot of universities are looking at this with a, with a little bit more critical eye, and they're thinking, okay, how do we use these OPM companies more strategically? And so, you know, kind of taking lessons learned after, you know, seeing how other institutions do it, and then working on developing those skills in-house so that they can potentially stand up those programs by themselves. And so kind of the, the big trend or the, the thing that most people are expecting to happen is that there's going to be a change in the contractual agreements with those OPM companies in the future, uh, away from the initial funding, you know, right up front to get those programs off the ground to a more service-based approach where, you know, there are specific things, specific elements that the university can, um, you know, leverage from those OPM providers. But the question that I have for you is, do, to, to, do today's institutions need to focus on developing the expertise to launch these programs in order to remain effective, or is there a way that they can use these OPM providers more strategically? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, fascinating article. Um, as you were as you were sharing the details, I was thinking uh, um, about the marketing piece um, that that's such a critical component of this when you consider the competition that's out there now in light of um, COVID. We've seen an acceleration of online opportunities or online options for students, and so the the online um, educational market is extremely competitive now. And prior to COVID, there were a few front runners like um, the University of Phoenix and some other programs that um, provided, you know, primarily provided online um, education, and so. 
with COVID, now everyone is doing it. And so a lot of them are partnering because to launch an online uh, program successfully, you need, you need, you need a lot of uh, resources to do that. And a lot of institutions aren't equipped to do that really well. So what they do is they partner with, you know, one of the firms that you mentioned. Um, but that raises some interesting, um, you know, uh, I don't want to call them issues, but it raises some interesting points. And that is about your question. Um, and I, I kind of reflect back on, um, you know, as a CIO, you think about build versus buy all the time because there's always opportunities with um, internal staff to build an application or build something that's going to support uh, the faculty or students versus buying an off-the-shelf COTS product. Um, and so those have to be weighed because I think we're not in the business of developing software uh, in most cases, I, I'm speaking, you know, generally. Um, and so to your question, I think, I think there's some variables that have to be kind of measured and evaluated. And I think one is the initial investment that's required to build something like that and what the return on investment is going long term. And so um, that's one aspect. And I think these, uh, as you mentioned, as these um, companies mature their their offerings, I think there might be better ways to um, have institutions um, partner with these uh, with these companies and not necessarily pay all up front or have these institutions um, have to pay significantly on the back end based on enrollment but really more of a partnership where maybe there is an incentive for the company to help with the marketing and to help with the quality of these programs. Um, you know, I think when I hear these type of stories, I think a little bit about, um, you know, uh, profitable institutions or institutions that are in for-profit and their marketing tactics that have received a lot of negative um, publicity over the years because of the tactics and in, in really getting students there, they're really focused on uh, high enrollment and not worrying about uh, the outcomes. And so that has to be weighed uh, with this as well. I think there needs to be something in place that it's okay to enroll as many students as you can in a program like that, but if the students aren't graduating or persisting through a program, then it's not really um, not really worth it, in my opinion. So. That's kind of how I look at it, um, and I, I really haven't had. Uh, I think you know, to our listeners, this is uh, a new uh, a new format where we're not giving each other really much um, uh, upfront notice on uh, these articles, so we kind of want to react to them, and that's how I react. And I I don't know if it's uh, accurate or not, but certainly that's my my sense um, with with your story, and I think I think that's a kind of a trend we're going to see continue going forward. Um, I, I know a few um, a few colleagues that have worked with some of those companies that provide that and they do a lot of um, a lot of support they have a lot of support services um, whether it's early alert, whether it's outreach and really helping students uh, continue to be successful through a program like that. I think that's really important. I think that's where institutions can really get some help. Because they may not have the resources to do that, um, the high touch point, really keeping students engaged. And I think that's part of OPM pro, uh, programs is really to keep students engaged 
get them through the program and, and, and graduate them really help them complete their, their program. So that's yeah. a really good article. What are your thoughts? Well, thanks, Joe. And uh, yeah, thanks for sharing your perspective. I know I didn't give you too much headway on this, but I appreciate well, that reaction. And I think that was a, uh, that was very valuable. <laughs> I do think that the article didn't touch on the article in the report didn't touch on one factor that I think plays a really big part in making this decision. And that's whether or not they want the institution wants to set up a full fledged online learning division where they have multiple different programs, different career or degree pathways, learning pathways, or whether they're just looking to have certain courses that are taught in an online modality. And so really the scale of how the institution is seeking to improve their online learning, you know, uh, presence, I think plays a really big part because contracting with one of these companies could provide some serious benefits if it's for such a large scale effort, but something that's a little bit smaller where it's really focused on a specific degree or an academic pathway, maybe something that the institution could develop in-house. Yeah, I like that. Um, you know, one one story that comes to mind is I believe, I want to say it's Duke, but it may have been another institution. They purchased a, an online, in, uh, I think an online college or an online program um, so they could quickly and easily have that um, service available to their students. I thought it was Duke, but they... They purchased a online program, a global, I think it was a global program, um, that gave them that capability really fast. Um, but we'll have to look that up because I think that might be something worth, um, bringing up on a, on a next, uh, episode just as a follow up to this story because I think there might be a lessons learned there or some additional information. Um, uh, maybe that's a, a model that we'll see more of. I, I certainly think there's going to be some consolidation um, occurring in the next uh, three to five years in higher ed. And I think we might see institutions also um, partner with uh, institutions that provide online programming, um, online course courses um, to, to bolster their uh, capabilities. Um, you know, back to your buy it or, or build it uh, question. I think um, sometimes it's easier just to, to buy it. Um, or partner, then the building could take a year or two. I mean, the programming that's involved in that and the hiring of uh, resources to do the marketing. And I, I, I think it's, I think it's more economical or more efficient for institutions really to buy it um, or to have really a really good uh, strategy for how it's funded if they're going to buy it. Um, so yeah, that was a really good article. Thanks, good topic. Yeah, that- that's a really good point. But but now I'm curious, Joe, what, what do you have to share with me today? Actually, a story, you know, kind of related in some ways uh, from a financial standpoint. But um, the Texas Tribune had an article about uh, a commission that was charged by the Texas legislature uh, to suggest new ways of financing the state's community colleges. And they unanimously approved a recommendation um, to high state funding to the performance of these institutions, specifically community colleges, um, on whether students graduate or transfer to four-year universities. So that's the, the performance piece. And so the commission um, looked at ways and made recommendations to the Texas legislature to 
um, to have a performance-based funding model put in place. Um, I don't think it's been approved yet, but I think we'll do a follow-up on that. But I think what's interesting about this is that this is a trend that we saw a few years back um, across the U.S. um, as institutions were looking um, for ways to increase their funding. Um, uh, States were looking at ways to tie performance funding uh, to these institutions for a number of different uh, reasons. But more importantly, Texas is looking at really tying that performance back to the funding that they received. As you may or may um, you know, receive their funding in a variety of different ways. There's tuition, um, there's state dollars, and then there's tax dollars that they receive as well. And most of those, I think, you know, certainly the state and the tax uh, dollars is kind of fixed uh, from year to year, but um, you know, tuition dollars can can increase or decrease based on enrollment, based on tuition rates, and so forth. Um, the state piece of it is really what's the focus because that is really um, an area that states continue to d- diminish the the investment in community colleges, and so. Um, just throwing money at a college doesn't guarantee good outcomes. And so um, states are, are liking the approach of tying it to performance and really helping colleges be incentivized to uh, greater performance of, uh, of outcomes. And so that's graduation, that's transfer. And so in this article, they talk about the different ways that um, the funding can be tied to performance-based um, uh, outcomes. And so I think this is something that we'll see more and more in the upcoming years. Um, the article that I referenced a few years ago was in the Berkeley BPR. Uh, it was an online Berkeley uh, paper, the Berkeley Political Review. And this was an article on California's push for performance in higher ed. So they they started this a, a few years back and they've had some success. And, and what they did was establish a performance-based funding model that 20% of the funding uh, would be uh, based on performance. And California joined 36 other states in a, a performance-based funding model. So as you can, as you can tell, um, this isn't new. This isn't something that um, is likely going to go away. I think we're going to see more and more um, headed in this direction because, uh, quite frankly, you know, there's there's a need for graduates. There's need for students to to increase their skills and cert- certifications. And so, um, you know, holding uh, colleges accountable really to to ensure that um, their students are are meeting their um, you know the their their goals, whether it's a certificate, whether it's transferred to a four-year, that's going to be really important. And so if colleges want to continue to see funding from the states, they'll have to uh, be incentivized to, to, um, to make sure that students are successful. And that means, you know, providing the engage- level of engagement, the services that students need, and really paying attention um, to students' uh, outcomes. So what are your thoughts on that? Well, there's certainly a lot to unpack there. And thank you for bringing that to my attention. That's certainly an interesting story. And, you know, to your point, if other states are are seeking to pass similar sorts of legislation, then clearly it's a trend uh, emerging, at least in the community college uh, landscape. 
And I did a quick Google search because I was curious. Uh, so apparently 80% or approximately 80% of uh, funding for community colleges is coming from uh, the state or local uh, funds. So whether that's taxes or directly through uh, the local or the state government. Um, so when it comes to performance-based outcomes being tied back to funding, I mean, there's some, there's some serious dollars at play. And when you were talking about that, there were a few things that came to mind. And, and the first of those was, was how do they measure um, performance for adult learners or people who aren't seeking to go to community college to graduate? So people who are really going to take some specific courses to help them in their careers, you know, how is that going to be taken into account when you're thinking about performance-based outcomes? Similarly, are they going to look at jobs that those people are able to move into after they graduate? I think that's a really big uh, performance metric that maybe uh, the, the legislation doesn't cover, but I think equally has some, some pretty serious weight on the overall value of the institution. And then finally, something that jumped out at me was, you know, if you're if you're a community college and you're really just looking to, you know, have students graduate, then what would be the academic effects? Are they going to design these programs so that students can complete them easier just so that they're able to say, you know, we graduated 99 percent of our, our student body? I think there's, you know, definitely some things that we that may warrant some further discussion if, so, if such a thing was to go into place in Texas. But yeah, the the adult learner um, piece, you know, whether they're looking at uh, future job placement and then also, um, you know, the the academic effects of, you know, trying to make sure that all of your students graduate on time. I, I definitely think that there's a lot there. Yeah, I think to that la last point that you made there, there's going to be a lot of pressure on institutions. You know, there's going to be. um having to pay attention to the data. And that's a whole other story to talk about, right? Because we, we hear all the time that colleges um, struggle with having good data. Um, and so I think that's going to have to be addressed at some point if you're going to start measuring outcomes and they have to be accurate. Um, but to your earlier point, what are those outcomes that you're going to measure and how do you measure them, right? I think certainly there's going to be some challenges with is the curriculum too easy? Are, are people grading students easier to make sure they graduate, which could present some, some issues there? Um, and then also those that come to get a certificate or just uh, new skills to transfer to a job or uh, earn a living wage, how do you track them a year later that they were successful in getting a job? Um, and so that is going to add some complexity to how you measure that and how you report that too. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, it, at the surface, it sounds like it, you know, it, it's, it's the right thing to do. It sounds like it's easy, but it's not. Um, I think under the surface, there's a lot of things that have to happen that have to be in place in order for institutions to successfully uh, implement something like this. So um, I like the idea, but it's, it's, um, it, it's going to require some, um, some, some really good thinking and strategy and implementation for the mechanisms to, to measure this accurately. So, yeah, 
any other any final thoughts on on that or your other story? Yeah, I guess final thoughts kind of related to your story is if performance or if funding is is truly or it truly ends up being tied um, more directly to the performance of those institutions and of the individual students. I hope that there's some allocation of funding for whether or not the students want to go after a four year degree at a, you know, a, a university or another college, because if the, the institution is receiving a certain amount of funding um, based on whether or not those students graduate, and then also if they're able to be placed at a four year institution, I mean, those costs can can vary pretty drastically between a two year and a four year institution. And so I, I would hope that there is some mention there of how those students could actually use some of that performance funding to pursue a four-year degree, because ultimately, you would hope a program like this would would benefit the students. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm just not sure if it's, if it's top of mind when they were developing that legislation. Yeah, that's a good point, Chase. It's amazing. You know, we only had two stories that we each shared one story. And... Um, I, I think we can continue talking, but we've we've uh, I think we've exceeded our 15 minute um, target for hot off the press. I think this is this has been awesome. Um, I really like the two topics we uh, we discussed today. Um, so I think we can kind of wrap this up and thank our listeners uh, for listening in on the latest news in higher ed. Yeah, yeah, I I really enjoyed this new format, and I hope we can keep this moving forward. Absolutely. Great. Thanks, Chase. See you, uh, see you in two weeks. Uh, for our listeners, if you wish to read more about these news items, please refer to our show notes for links to these stories. You can find our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google. Check back in two weeks for Chase and I to bring you more higher ed news and stories. Until then, stay well. Stay well.